Welcome to the eighth episode of Trust the Badge. In this episode, I interview Alan Bradstock, who is an Army veteran and a former FBI special agent. We not only discuss what it's like to be an FBI special agent, but we discuss how to trust the badge from his perspective working in the FBI. Let's begin with an introduction from Mr. Bradstock and why he wanted to be a part of law enforcement. My name's Alan Bradstock, and I was raised in a former steel town near Pittsburgh. I studied accounting at Washington and Jefferson College. After that, I was eight years active duty Army as an aviation officer. It was pretty cool to learn how to fly helicopters, but it was a lot more hard work being a leader, but enjoyed it. I spent a little time after the Army being a financial advisor and an auditor with KPMG, and then I, where I was an agent and a supervisor. And I retired from the FBI in June of 2017. Took a couple of years off and that actually was a contractor supporting the National Counterintelligence and Security Center for a couple of years. And I left that job about a year and a half ago to come back to my home area to help take care of some family matters. So, um, but the reason I got into law enforcement was a combination of factors. First, probably time I ever thought about it was my dad had a good friend who became a postal inspector and his friend was talking about how great a job it was. And so he encouraged me to apply. So I did when I was still in the army and thinking about getting out and it was a long process. Um, and so that was the first time I really thought about it. And also about the time I was getting out of the army, a couple of my army friends that were also getting out were looking at the FBI. And so that made me think about it. And I think after, honestly, after I was out of the army for a couple of years and doing finance and odd thing that I kind of missed the, um, just, I guess I had a desire to serve and I missed that feeling. And so I think that was part of it. And, and also I think. I thought back about how my grandmother had lost her retirement savings to a swindle and, you know, it just was kind of motivation to be part of the justice system. So kind of a combination of things. Why the FBI? Well, I think that one of my army friends actually got in and I remember he reached out to me when he was at the academy and I went and met one of my former commanders that we both worked for who was living in the DC area. And I was in Pennsylvania at the time. So I just came down and saw him and he was talking about how, how happy he was with becoming an FBI agent. And so that really, I think propelled me and uh, apply for the FBI because I didn't apply when I was in the army. I just was looking into it. And so I did apply. And I, I think also the fact that they just investigate everything and there was so many things that you could do in the FBI was appealing. How long were you an agent? I was, I was in the FBI for just over 20 years. I actually retired just a few weeks after I was eligible. I enjoyed my time in the FBI, but since the last two thirds of my time, I was doing counterterrorism type of invest you know, support. It, it wore me, you can't quite get away from it. And so it, it just kind of wore me out over that time. But uh, yeah, for those 20 years, I did a lot of different things though. I was the first six years I was in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and uh, that was interesting being along the border. I was primarily focused on drug investigations, but you can't help, but be part of all the different wacky things that would happen down along the border. And uh, so got a lot of pretty good experience doing that. 
And I was also, because I did a big case and I worked well in her, with other agencies, I was asked by my boss to be part of the New Mexico Investigative Support Center. It was part of the HIDA, which is a high-intensive high intensive drug trafficking area. And it was just an interagency intelligence, uh, basically, center. And I, I really enjoyed that. And uh, then I got a promotion to our counterterrorism division at FBI headquarters. And for the first year and a half, I was assigned to CIA at their finance, finance center. And so that was a very interesting experience and pretty overwhelming to go from learning all the drug names and, uh, you know, getting to know most of them were Mexican and Hispanic names, and then now having to, to learn the, the Arabic names. And so it's been overwhelming, but it was also a great learning experience. And then I did a, another year and a half coordinating counterterrorism matters with, and I was assigned to DEA's special operations division. And so that was another interesting interagency experience. And then, um, then I went to Louisville where I became a field supervisor and I was responsible for basically integrating intelligence into, into the field office with the investigative squads. And uh, that was one of the big pushes post 9-11 to uh, integrate intelligence into FBI. And uh, it was a big challenge and I, I really, it just was a good marriage of all of my skills and I had some great people working for me. So we actually did quite well in doing that in Louisville. And, and then I left there and I spent a year and a half in Ottawa, Canada as part of the, I was the deputy legal attache is the title. So basically I was coordinating with Canadian intelligence and law enforcement agencies on matters across the border. And that was another interesting experience. And then I came back to FBI headquarters as part of counterterrorism division and spent three years doing strategic operations and really coordinating strategies against some terrorism groups that were Africa and, and Syria based. And then my last year I was at the terrorism screening center. And that was another interesting experience dealing with a lot of, uh, international partners in, in order to share information into a, a database that everybody could use. So I had a 20 years, but did a lot of different things. And it was, I look back on it and kind of amazed at all the different things that I was able to do. If you could, could you just explain like some of the main duties that you were assigned as an agent? Sure. Well, the first six years when I was an agent, my primary role was as an investigator. So, and most of it was, as I said, border related, drug related primarily. And, and so as a supervisor, which was the last two thirds of my career, I would basically lead teams that supported mostly either terrorism investigations or teams that were integrating intelligence into in, with the investigations. So it, it really depended on which role I was at, but it was both, those were the broad types of duties that I had. Within those duties, what was your favorite part of the job? And what was your least favorite? My favorite was working as part of a team. I think I, it was when I was in the FBI that I really began to realize that that was where I got most of my satisfaction, even in the past where they were team sports when I was playing basketball or other type of team thing, I got the most satisfaction from. And so I think just working with others on matters that were focused on justice or protecting the U.S. So I think, you know, it, it just felt good that that decision to get into the FBI to serve again really probably was a very good 
decision for me. And as my career went on and as I got a bigger perspective and started working on strategies, I realized that I was very good at it and that it could have a bigger impact. And so the bigger the impact, the better. And sometimes I was able to have a, a big impact. Unfortunately, a lot of the things I can't talk about, but, and then there were times where I thought I was going to have a big impact, but got reassigned and wasn't quite able, but just being able to have that drive to try to have that big impact really was probably what, especially the, the last half of my career was my favorite part. The least favorite was the paperwork. You know, television shows don't show all the, uh, the grinding paperwork that you have to do on the job and, you know, things that anybody would probably expect, like you do an interview and you have to write it up in, at least for the FBI, that was a form to 302 was kind of a basic way to do that. But there was a whole lot of other paperwork that you would have to do to get approvals, depending on what type of investigative procedure that you may want to do. It wasn't any sort of wild west, you do whatever you wanted type of investigation. Um, yeah, you could go out and talk to people without getting a supervisor's approval. But sometimes if you wanted to do other things, like, especially if you're trying to get a wiretap on somebody's phone, then that would go through many, many, many layers of review and changes to, to documents and writing a, a long affidavit to support that application, with, which could be dozens of pages. It, it really was a lot more than I expected or had to deal with in the army. I've sure heard that before. The paperwork part is definitely something that's not as talked about too much and it's definitely time consuming. What surprised you about working for the FBI? You know, I think the approval level, I, when I joined the FBI, I was 33. And when I was, when I joined the army, I knew and really after I got out of flight school and I was a, a second lieutenant, I had more authority over the soldiers working for me at the pretty junior, the basic, the, the first line supervisor level than, than I did really in the, in the FBI and a lot of the investigative techniques required approval levels and that were just higher than I would have expected. And I'm sure they were all due to things that went wrong in the past. They, they seem to be a, a bit inefficient and, but some of them were, were, I think appropriate, but some maybe a little bit overly so, but uh, the approval levels definitely surprised me. I talked about the paperwork. Not only did I not like it, but it also surprised me just the amount of the paperwork. And when I became a supervisor, you know, one of the main things that we had to do is I might lead a squad, um, but I would have these, what they call program management duties. So like for me, and when I was in Louisville, for instance, I was responsible for the intelligence program. I would have the surveillance program. And I think there was another sort of a program and the FBI, right as I took over as a field supervisor, made a, a huge change to their program management process and it just got a little out of hand with what type of documentation they wanted new app that was very inefficient and cumbersome to work with and so it just took a lot more time than i expected well intended after many years of you know improvement it was less burdensome and, and more useful but the first few years was a lot more than i expected so that was a surprise and while you were working for the sbi how often did you interact with the public and the community, considering that you had so much work and you had so many different experiences? Well, as an investigator, I was, I would say on average, maybe weekly, I would interact with the public. 
Now, there would be times when if there was, we were reacting to a bank robbery or a, some special case where, you know, I might be interacting with the public times during one day and day after day and just doing it for weeks. And then there were other times when I might be managing a, a wiretap where I was just in a room listening and doing analysis and doing paperwork to keep everybody informed where I may not interact with anybody for a couple months at a time. So it really kind of wildly, it changed depending on where I was in my investigative duties. As a supervisor, it was fairly rare. When I was in Louisville a couple of years, I gave a presentation to the Citizens Academy. And so that was maybe a one hour during a year where I would interact with the public. And, uh, and I enjoyed that. And then the other time was working with the Nigerian diaspora as part of a countering violent extremism CVE program, where we were just trying to build trust within that community. And I, I really enjoyed that as well. So those were just a couple of times in my last two thirds of my career. Although you were trying to interact with the community and build that trust, how did you manage with the people that dislike you just because you were an FBI agent? Well, when, when I was an FBI agent in the late nineties, early 2000, there really, I never, I don't have any recollection of somebody not liking me just because I was an FBI agent. There would be a lot of typical reactions every time you'd knock on a door and want to talk to somebody. And cause there weren't a lot of, of FBI agents in, in New Mexico. And so everybody would be mostly surprised. There was, oh, I didn't do it. Or just, you know, just being like, wow, you know, I've never met And just, there's so many different types of reactions, but I, I never, I don't have any recollection of anybody being just hostile towards me for that. Even when I was, um, interviewing suspects and people that we had arrested. And part of that is we, we were trained to treat everybody with respect. And so, and I believed in that anyway. And so since I always treated somebody with respect, whether they were a murderer or a drug dealer or some criminal, I never had them, they, they just reacted normally. I, I would get lied to a lot, but uh, I never got yelled at or really was unhappy with me because of that. Now, probably there was maybe a, a law enforcement officer or two that in different agencies that might've had some bad experiences with other FBI agents, but that didn't happen very often either. But, you know, that was probably the closest that I came to with a couple of other law enforcement agencies personnel. That's very good considering that, you know, right now the status quo, usually there's a lot of distrust in the police and obviously there are the reasons. Well, that's really good that you haven't experienced any of that showing that there's at least some improvement going on. And in your experience working for the FBI, what did you encounter or see on the job that gave you more motivation for your work? Yeah, there was a couple of things. I told you that I, I really enjoyed working as part of a team. And I think that what I really started to learn soon after I got to and was working drugs in Las Cruces was the power of interagency and, or even just at least different parts of the FBI working towards a common goal. Like my first drug case that I worked, I was working with the, the local Metro Narcotics Task Force that was the sheriff and the police department. I ended up working closely with the, the DEA and then many different parts of the FBI. You know, I did it with that Nigerian uh, CBE you know, program that we had in the community. And that was, I think, uh, motivating because not only did I have multiple FBI 
entities involved. I had, then it was the National Counterterrorism Center, had a CVE program that would go out and talk to. So I was working closely with them and then also with the, the community. So that was where I was able to FBI, law enforcement, intelligence, and, and the community all kind of pulling in the same direction. So I, I, I was motivated by that. And then also even just developing strategies and implementing them and seeing the power of doing that well, it just made me more and more motivated to try to get others to do that and just to emphasize what I'd learned when I did that as part of our team at Louisville. And then when I took it up to headquarters where others hadn't had the same experience. And so it was, I felt good about being able to do it, show others how, how effective it could be. And, and I just learned how it, it's important to prioritize and to focus on the highest priorities and to really spend most of your time on what those top priorities are and try to spend less time on some of the lesser things. But that's always a challenge in any organization. And probably the last one was just that I really was surprised and probably really understood was just the, uh, the power of an effective process. And I found that I was motivated to and became a bit of a zealot on just if you do the process right and with and you just not only just do the process but have the right mentality and get everybody's take that that power of the team that you end up with a much better work product and and had had a lot of success in different places when i was able to do that so so that was probably too many examples of you know things that motivated me those examples are definitely good and it definitely does show what really pushes an sbi agent first of all and what good you do in the community. And when it comes to the community, what common misconception does the community have about law enforcement? Sure. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things for the community, and, you know, I think it probably bears mentioning that, you know, it was just a few days ago that, you know, the Memphis Police Department released the video of the Tyree Nichols death there. And I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, but I did. And, uh, you know, I think one, one thing is just, and this is at all, I don't want, I'm not absolving police officers at all, but there is a lot of, it's very difficult to make, I think, split second decisions about during events. And I know that I was trained, I was fortunate in the FBI, I never was involved in any altercation or never had to fire my weapon. I had, you know, you would typically just have it and have it drawn and be ready, but never even had to point it at anybody. So I, I was very fortunate to not have to ever endure that, but we did have a lot of training about action versus reaction and going through a shoot house and, uh, you know, where basically it would be just a mock-up of a building and there would be posters and then you would have to decide pretty quickly whether you you should shoot that person or not shoot or what type of actions to take. And, uh, and I've even been through different simulations when I was at the academy that are very hard. And I think that, uh, you know, that would be one thing that I think is, is not well understood is how difficult it is and to really put yourself in the shoes of officers. You, you can't, there's nothing, if you saw the video that would excuse what they did, it was terrible, but uh, that's, I just wanted to mention that just because it was irrelevant in the point of time. But, uh, and the other two are two things that I think are, are more investigation focused is how resource intensive a major investigation could be. You know, I think a, a lot of folks may think that it's easy to do a wiretap and that it may not take a lot of resources, but it really took a lot 
of time and effort to even get that application approved and then to get all the resources together. We would have to have surveillance teams at the same time as we were have people monitoring the wiretap and then would have to write it all up. And so it really almost shut down our office because we had a small office in Las Cruces and we would have to get help from other agencies and even other parts of the FBI to come down and help us when we did that. So I think just how resource intensive a major investigation is, is probably something that there's a misconception about. And then I think also how many approvals are needed for a lot of different things. As I mentioned, the wiretap, you know, my supervisor, there would be the division's chief legal counsel. There would be the U.S. attorney would have to review it. If you had any co-case agents, they would have to review it. And then it would go up to FBI headquarters and they would have to review it at one or two levels. And then Department of Justice would have to review it at one or two levels and then it would get approved. And uh, so a lot of these things just took a lot of approval and even some more mundane things would take the supervisor or maybe even have to go up another level or two for their approval. So, um, so I think that it's, it's important to know that it's not a lot of wild west going on, certainly within the FBI, because that was my experience. As you mentioned about specific scenarios, would you say that, for example, use of force is a misconception? And I think use of force is that that's certainly a training area where people are trained to try to use, or I think use of force policy. One thing that what I realize is different agencies have different policies. And so I think having policy, like one of the things that surprised me was, was for the FBI, at least that we were trained that if we were going to fire at somebody, we were not to fire at somebody. We weren't trying to knock a gun out of somebody's hand. We weren't trying to shoot their arm so they couldn't do something. If we were actually shooting at somebody, it was because we felt we were in grave danger or somebody else was in grave danger and we were shot to, to basically shoot to, to kill. And so, um, you know, if we got to that point, then, and of course they also trained us to try to have command of the situation and to ensure that people were complying with the, the commands. And we were pretty well trained in how to do that. And I felt that whenever I was arresting somebody that those, that training paid off, but, and also the FBI, we, we have a, a, an advantage where when we're doing arrests almost all the time, we know in advance and we take a lot of people with us. So it's not just one or two people trying to uh, handle a situation because, you know, even one other person can be uh, hard to manage if they're resisting. So we would go with overwhelming force. And so we had a lot less of those use of force issues because it wasn't a fair fight because we would have so many people. In your opinion, what specific scenarios put law enforcement on the downside when projected by the media, as you mentioned, for example, very recently on the news? Well, certainly, you know, anytime somebody is killed or seriously injured, especially without weapons. And, uh, but I think the point I would want to make is that they're not always created equally. They're, you know, that the differentiating between the truly bad ones, like, like what we were able to see just the other day with Mr. Nichols in Memphis or George Floyd or hear about like Freddie Gray, I think of where it was, there's really no excuse for what happened to those folks. But some of the others that may even be somewhat famous, 
you know, it, it's not as clear cut. And because some of those, the, the individuals may have been acting in a way I, I can remember. I don't remember the, the, the boy's name. I think there was a, maybe a 12 year old in Cleveland that had a toy gun that was tragically shot. And, but you know, if you have, how do you know if you roll up to somebody, if it's a toy gun or not, that that's one where, you know, that's a tragic mistake. And, uh, you know, if it's, you know, and if somebody is an adult size with a, with a toy gun pointing it, that in my training, that would have been, if they're not dropping it very quickly, a thing that my training would have indicated, Hey, that would be somebody that we would be trained to shoot at. And so the, those are the ones that are tragic for sure, but not necessarily the same in my opinion, and definitely deserve differentiating the, the clear abuses that some of the ones that like Floyd and, and Nichols. And I think the other probably, it's not so much a scenario, but just some data. You know, I think that when you look at the incarceration rates of black and Hispanics compared to whites, you know, that's a data point that you know, we should be looking at. And you know, fortunately it's, uh, it's actually improved a bit. You know, some of those incarceration rates actually for all races, I, I was just looking at them, had come down a bit, but you know, using, looking at data, I think is important to, to consider. And I think that the community is going to be looking at some of that data as well. And in terms of right now, what does the term defund the police mean to you? Well, to me, it, it's just you know, like one dictionary defines defund as to withdraw funds from. So to me, it's just plain and simple to withdraw funds from the police. And of course, why shouldn't law enforcement be defunded? Well, I believe, certainly I joined law enforcement community because I, I believe in it's essential for law and order. And I think that, at least my opinion, I think defunding is, and I think some people may use that term and really mean maybe we should move some resources or consider other ways of handling certain situations, maybe particularly if there's a use of, or there's some mental health issue that's known. Um, but uh, certainly I think not still withdrawing all funds from all police officers would be very bad for society. But, you know, I also want to acknowledge that I think some of the folks that may use that phrase that there, there is need for law enforcement to do a little better job of understanding some of the factors that lead up to some of these terrible events and you know, maybe some research and other things to, to how do we, and some policies and conversations to try to figure out how do we can reduce that, those types of events. Should there be more funding for law enforcement? Well, that's, that's a broad question. And I think part of it depends on the agency and, and what are the goals and objectives that people are looking for. But I guess in general, I would say, yes, I think there should be some more funding, especially if they're used for some strategic things, especially like I think of training that could be helpful. I think that uh, I know that I was uh, fortunate at the FBI 
was able to give us a lot of training and, and a lot of people actually have longer training periods than we do. But as far as really doing, you know, the firearms and defensive tactics, and we had a lot of great resources like Hogan's Alley was a, a place where, you know, it's a whole mock-up of a small town and there would be actors and we were able to go and do actual scenario based things with, you know, with actors that were just bystanders, good guys, bad guys. And, you know, it, it, and also being able to, uh, do like paintball exercises where there could be some potential criminals and you're doing arrests, but it's at, in an actual building and having access to those types of resources. And so, you know, I think that having, allowing all the different types of law enforcement, maybe from smaller police departments that may not have as great a tra training resources, I think that would be really important to, to be able to give them some more of the, the training opportunities. Because I think some of the things where there's issues could, could be reduced. Although if you think about the biggest, the, the two most, probably the, the most recent Nichols case in Memphis and the George Floyd in Minneapolis, those were fairly decent sized police departments. So they probably have more training resources. So it's not a, not a silver bullet. And one other thing I think that kind of related to the conversation of the defunding versus or more funding for law enforcement, I think some complementary funding for mental health responses, it would be something to, to consider. And I suspect some, some jurisdictions and some towns and cities may already do something like that. And, you know, I think that would be an area that, to explore more and see if there's ways to do that. And of course, that's a challenge when if somebody's mentally having a mental health crisis and is exhibiting some violence, then certainly you need to have a police officer. But if it's just somebody having a breakdown that isn't necessarily violent, there may be times when another you know, resource could be sent that may be more adequately trained for just dealing with mental health because we're asking a lot of police officers. Sure. And continuing off of that last point, could you just expand a bit more on why it's so important to send someone else that maybe not might be a police officer? And if you maybe know if there are any examples right now of that? You know, I don't know really of any particular jurisdiction. I, I just remember that when I was involved with the, the Countering Violent Extremism program, when I was dealing with the Nigerian community, I got to know a lot of the folks in the, the FBI's countering violence, the CVE office, and got to go to some meetings with interagency with Department of Justice and Department of Homeland Security. And I became a big believer in the concept. And I believe that uh, there was one, I think it was Montgomery County in Maryland was really had a, a program where they were getting mental health folks involved with this program. And so they would be law enforcement, mental health, there would be some community leaders and a lot of other folks that would be involved. And so it could be that they may be exhibiting this behavior that is concerning, but maybe it's more appropriate for mental health to take the lead first. And of course, that there's a risk analysis in doing that. And so that would have to be a risk assessment done on those case-by-case basis. But I think that if we had more access and allowed folks that are mentally, you know, mental health professionals, and, and some of them, maybe it's just a, a special police officer that has that background. And so there may be ways, and I don't know all the answers, but I just know that having 
I, I know now at 58 that mental health is a, a big challenge. There's just from you know, friends and family that have have dealt with some of those issues. And so I, I have a much broader understanding of it than, than I did, certainly even when I joined the FBI. What message do you have for any current or future law enforcement listening to this interview? And how can they change the perspective of law enforcement in the future? Well, I guess one, one thing I'd want to say, tell them is, you know, thank you for the service. It is, it's a difficult and often thank, thankless job. And it's also a stressful job. I, I can remember, I don't remember exactly what they were trying to tell us, but as we were leaving and getting ready to graduate and go out to the field, they reminded us of some, some grim statistics that I don't remember them exactly, but just the the number of marriages that ended in divorce and the stress levels and a lot of uh, anxiety, depression, all a lot of types of things that a lot of more law enforcement than you would think have. And, uh, and then I just had seen, I was doing a little bit of research, I think it was in Brookings Institute, I saw a report where 80% of law enforcement officers report chronic stress. And so I guess what I would say is, you know, if you're feeling that, or, or maybe it's more when you're feeling that, you know, ask for help and, you know, take a step back, maybe seek some counseling. And it's not necessarily, I think, part of the culture, but maybe if we can start to bend that a little more, as I think society is really over, even just the past few years, you think of athletes that are taking mental health breaks. And I think that's healthy. And I think if law enforcement were able to feel safe doing it, it everybody would be, would be better off. Because if, if you're having a hard time and then you're rolling up on a really bad situation, it just is certainly a recipe for disaster and probably is a contributing factor to some of these bad comes. Ultimately, how do we trust the badge? You know, I think for me, I, I think of, you know, I, I'm, I'm a strategy guy. I've turned into this person that really believes in strategy. So I kind of looked at it as, all right, what's, what's kind of a strategy a little bit on both sides. And so I, kind of identified six areas that I guess I would call the goals. One, communication. I think having conversations between the community and law enforcement and whenever that is, whatever the setting, you know, it's critical that people actively listen. That's a crucial element because I think there's a lot of emotion. And if you're just trying to get your point across, but not actually listening, then there's not going to be much, much change. But if folks go in there and give their perspectives, but also truly actively listen, I think there's, there's some room to kind of move together. And I hope, and I also just think of some training I got that revealed how powerful confirmation bias is that if we're just around others that think like us and, and, and we're just getting information, even if we get information that proves or disproves what we think that we tend to remember the stuff that, you know, confirms what we already think and, and not so much the things that counter it. So I think being mindful of confirmation bias is, is part of that active listening. And also I think another part of that conversation and is kind of, if there's more community oriented policing, I think that's very similar to the kind of the CVE mindset where you're engaging with the community. And so I think having more agencies that uh, transition to that would 
would be helpful. Another element of communication is citizens academies. I know we did one with the FBI and I think any agency that has the resources and can do that would, would benefit from just engaging with the academy. Now ours was in person 15 years ago, but if, especially if you're able to have one and uh, put it online where more people can watch or maybe record it and where it's something that uh, you can have people go to and have kind of a video library of things going on. Because I think if folks really understood what's going on and what it's like to be a police officer and what the goals are, and just hearing people talk about how they passionately do care about trying to protect and serve that, that that would help. And, and I think that that goes along with kind of educating the public on what it's like to be a police officer, especially kind of what it's like to try to be in one of those scenarios when you're, you're fear for your own safety and you're not sure what's going on and, and, and somebody's not listening to your commands, what that might be like. So I think that would be important. Another element, it's kind of my second goal would be just to focus on that officer wellness that I, I had mentioned earlier and the mental health aspect. You know, if there's 80% that according to this report of Brookings Institute, that identify as having chronic stress and how it feeds into, you know, for different people could be depression, anxiety, relationship problems, and people that get angry easily. You know, if we're able to reduce that, that would, you know, just make everybody could have less bad outcomes, the, the tragic outcomes for sure. You know, I think I also re related to that. The report noted one in six report being suicidal, one in six report substance abuse, and that only not it, only 10% ever sought help. So, you know, I think really focusing on officer wellness and, and trying to improve the culture where they can feel it, it's okay to seek help since it seems like a lot of them are feeling it at times throughout their careers. The third goal is transparency from the law enforcement agencies. And part of that may be just with doing a better job at times with what the department goals and policies are, but especially whenever there is some sort of misconduct, especially maybe that outcomes like just happened in Memphis. I think training is the fourth one, especially de-escalation training, where I know when I was in the academy, we spent a lot of time on firearms and defensive tactics. And I think some of that certainly would help to deescalate with the defensive tactics and, you know, doing it in a professional way and with the right voice is important, but I don't really remember, and there might've been, but I don't remember much, if any actual deescalating es escalation training. And I think that that could be a benefit. And, and as I mentioned earlier, for some some agencies that may not have as, as much training resources, if there were, you know, ways that some could get trained on like a Hogan's Alley type of scenario situation with actors or shoot house where you really have to decide shoot or don't shoot in different circumstances. And, and I think even like the simulated situations that I had the, the privilege to kind of sit through the firearms training system where you're, you basically are viewing something on a screen, you might have your weapon and then you have to actually interact with the scenario and give commands and say what you're going to do and just act like you're with a partner or give a command to another person that's on the screen. And depending on what you do, that scenario goes in many different paths. And I think that's a, a terrific training tool 
that could help with the de-escalation training. And then there's policy, you know, whether it's the use of force, as you mentioned earlier, you know, policy could be that change to community oriented policing. And, and even if there needs to be some policy considerations regarding, you know, how law enforcement gets disciplined when there, there is something bad that happens. And I know that uh, sometimes the unions is, as they do a lot of great things and I'm not anti-union, but sometimes they could also mean that it's hard to, to actually discipline some of the officers. And then if you have one that doesn't get disciplined, then it could be just a bad actor that does something even worse down the road. And my last one, sorry, I'm, I've got so many, is some research. I think really focusing on evidence-based approach to what works and to adjust policies based on, on that. So I think just having a strategy and implementing it, kind of a national strategy, and I think different agencies and at different levels could start to do that. And there's many agencies that are already doing this. I'm certainly no expert. It's just something that I was thinking of as I was preparing for this and just trying to figure out the different ways that both sides could be part of. But I think it's incumbent on law enforcement to do the heavy lifting, but it's a societal problem. And, you know, I think it's one that's important. And, uh, and I'm also one that I'm confident that we've made progress and that there'll be continued progress down the road. And what about the younger generations? How do we do that for the next generations, not knowing how they're going to be interacting with law enforcement? Yeah. And I think that's, that's one that is going to be the generation where it's most needed just based on some of the, the demographics. And I think that it's, it's going to be a lot of that different things that I talked about in the strategy. I think if the, uh, the communication I think is important. And I think it's also incumbent on the, the younger generation to focus on that active listening and to really try to understand what it's like to be a police officer. Again, not to condone some of the bad outcomes. Um, and I think that, you know, trusting that if we engage in this process and, you know, if you're a young person to, to be engaged. And don't just get mad, but, you know, to try to understand the police officers and what it's like to do that, but also to you know, seek some, some of the changes that I think are, that I outlined in, you know, some of the goals that I think would be important. Cause I think if, if they're able to focus on, you know, something, especially if it's data, I, I always love to go back to data is to try to take some of the emotion out of it and to kind of have a process because to really, I think to make, you know, all the times where in my work experience where we have the best outcomes, it's when a lot of different people would get involved and be around the table if it was a strategy and we were trying to implement it. And so everybody had to feel safe that they could speak their mind. You know, everybody wants to be heard. And I think that not everybody's always going to be happy with the outcome because somebody's going to have to make a decision on where to go. But I think if, if people feel heard and they are actively listening and, and the decisions are made and, and especially if you're able to make a consensus or if that decision maker is, makes a decision consistent with the consensus. Typically, in my experience, if that's a well, a good process where people feel engaged and, and feel part of it, that they're, they're good with the outcome. And then to continue to do that, 
over and over. It's not a one-time thing, but you have to continue to engage and then figure out what works. And you know, when, when I've had the greatest success, it wasn't because we had the perfect plan the first time. It's that we kept coming back to the same thing and, and having that meeting that's a follow-up and we would do something and learn from what went well and what didn't what went well. And then we were also able to be able to identify opportunities that we never would have saw in the beginning. And so I think having that conversation, having a lot of different perspectives could bring about some of the changes that we want as a society. And I think there's a lot of those different solutions and, and then figure out the ones that truly work. And that's where that research and evidence-based approaches. And, you know, hopefully if they're working to, to do more of that. So I think it's a bit of a long-winded answer to the question, but I, I do believe in, in the process. Do you have any final thoughts? You know, just a couple of things and I don't want to get into too much more, but a couple of the things that are, I think, relevant are, uh, I remember when I was giving the whole concept of freedom versus security, I think it's kind of related to this because there's a bit of a pendulum that I notice even in my 20 years in the FBI of what, what the public wants and where, uh, where they perceive that we're at in a certain thing. You know, if you have a lot of freedoms and you allow and you don't allow law enforcement or intelligence agencies the ability to do certain things, you may have more freedom, but you may not feel as secure. If you're too far off on one side or the other, there's risk. And, and one of the things that I found very interesting is the second time I did this presentation, I actually put a board up there and I asked everybody to like have a sticker and figure out where they thought we were. And kind of the consensus was that, you know, this was back in 2007 and eight, that we were pretty well on track with having the right balance of freedom versus security. And so I think that, you know, kind of related to this, this topic, I think we're, we're pretty close rights. I honestly believe that we can get even better where, you know, the communication can improve people's understanding and, and that, uh, but I think with a little bit more transparency that we'd be able to improve, you know, and lessen and training some of the outcomes. I think one other thing was use of technology and just when it comes, because some people may, you know, fear the the surveillance cameras and especially artificial intelligence potentially coming down the road and even some of the more powerful databases. And so, you know, we don't want to become a police state like China because they have actually figured out how to use that and in a way that I find to be scary. But to find the balance where we don't go that far, but that, you know, but we allow the tools for police to keep us safe and trust that you know, some of these powerful tools would be helpful and keep people safe, but not abused. And so they are used in some way because the, the Chinese, they actually give a kind of a social score to people based on, you know, all their vast surveillance of the internet and surveillance cameras and all those types of things. So we certainly don't want to go there. So I d don't really want to end this on a bummer type of a thing, but I, I honestly think that we, we do a pretty good job with, with that balance right now. But I think that's also going to be just something to think about in the future when some of these tools become even more powerful down the road. Well, thank you for your time and thank you for expanding on all your thoughts 
in giving us your opinion on many things. Absolutely. Everything that you've mentioned definitely needs to be improved and especially building trust with the community, as you said, with your six points. I really hope that happens in the future. And thank you for spreading that message to future or current law enforcement officers that's listening to this right now, because what you said definitely has an impact on the change in the future of that. Thank you for listening to this episode and make sure you follow this podcast as well as the Instagram at Trust the Badge.